Good morning. I want to thank Pastor Brian for the opportunity to be back with you. It's been a little while, but uh, you've not been far from our thoughts. Um, now that we've all enjoyed our, uh, our Thanksgiving uh, gluttony, I would like to be the first, perhaps, to say, on with the Christmas season. I, uh, I've always been a firm believer in celebrating one holiday at a time, and now that uh, Thanksgiving is behind us, you can, now you can play your Christmas carols, Meyer. Now, I understand there are some in our midst who have been entertaining Christmas music and things for several weeks already. And to you, I have just one thing to say. Well, I'll say this instead. <laughs> we are a welcoming and generous community. You are welcome here today, regardless of whatever twisted and aberrant belief you happen to bring with you. In fact, the liturgical calendar of the church, the large C Christian church, um, relates most of our favorite holidays to events in the life of Christ, not just Advent Christmas uh, related to his birth, but of course, Good Friday, his death, and uh, Easter morning, his resurrection. But there is also a season, quite a holiday in the Christian calendar related to the events that you've been studying the last few weeks, the temptations in the wilderness, those 40 days of fasting. Anyone want to take a stab at what that season is called? Lent. Lent. Good. No one in the first service got it. So good. We have one. We have somebody here from a liturgical background. Um, yeah, the Lenten season where Christians uh, reflect upon temptation, sin, fasting, repentance, while eating punchkis. Um, well, you've got to have something to repent from, I suppose. So we're a little early for that, I, I, I guess, but in the season of reflection and consideration that Frontline is coming into with some of the things that are ahead for you, this is actually a perfect place for you to be, to spend some time with Jesus here at the, the front end of His ministry. Before all of the things that Jesus is known for really get rolling, He is going to be tested in the wilderness. You've considered two of these three temptations already in previous weeks, and so we come this week to consider the third, the final temptation. I won't say the last temptation, because that means something else. But to remind you of what's a bit gone before and get a, a running into it, Jesus has gone forth into the wilderness, not for a time of solitude and quiet, nor contemplation, nor refreshment. He has gone forth to meet the tempter. Forty days without food, he fasts. And in the greatest understatement in all of the Bible, he was afterward a little hungry. St. Mark speaks more dramatically than Matthew does when he tells us how this came about. He says that the Spirit immediately drove him, compelled him into the wilderness for this purpose. So we've got a problem here. We are told, we as Christians, as people, are told to flee temptation, not to entertain it or to run from it, to pray against it. And yet here we find Jesus walking directly into the mouth of the lion, driven by the Spirit toward it. Why does Jesus here do what we are commanded not to do, what we're commanded to avoid? Isn't it a bit hypocritical of Jesus to teach his disciples to pray in just a few chapters in Matthew, 
lead us not into temptation when he himself walks so willingly into it? Why this profound disconnect between his actions and our own? Well, already perhaps you begin to feel something rather strange is happening in this passage, something larger than what we might initially see. And of course, one answer to that, or the obvious answer as to the difference, is in the one who is being tempted. See, for all the necessity of Jesus, as Paul says, being like us in every respect, he really wasn't. He was the Messiah, the one sent of God, sent to do the mission of his Father, a mission that, although underpinning the whole of the Christian life and all that we do here, was unique to himself, a mission I could not do, only he could. That's kind of the point. Thus, the strangeness of the temptations themselves. He faces what, what honestly to us, wouldn't even be considered temptations. Things that could only be temptations to him, given who he was. Here, says the tempter, turn these stones into bread. How many of you would find that a temptation? Expelliarmus. No good. It couldn't be a temptation for you. You couldn't do anything about it. Stan Lee, God rest his soul, might be able to have imagined a human being who could manage it, but it isn't me. We would simply have had to starve. That was our option. We are unable to turn stones to bread, but for him, being who he was, would have been, as we say, super easy, barely an inconvenience. He would demonstrate this just a few Sometimes later, a little while later, at a wedding in Cana, he would effortless, effortlessly turn water into wine. What are stones to bread? The same with the second temptation that you considered last week, the, you know, the pinnacle of the temple, right? The, the tempter takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple and says, cast yourself down and the Father will send the angels to bear you up. And I want to say this without, the, without a hint of any humor in it. Many of us have known loved ones who have taken their own lives or tried. No angels appeared. We don't expect angels to serve us that way. Wouldn't have been a temptation for us. We don't even, we don't even really pragmatically, we don't even really believe in angels. Not in any way that's practical. Yet for him, being who he was, yes, there is something very unusual going on here. Something unique, something strange, something otherworldly at work. Our goal this morning is to try to figure out what that is and what it may say to our struggles in the world. And so we come to the third and final of the temptations that Matthew writes about it in the fourth chapter of his gospel. Again, a third time, the devil took him to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all of this I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Well, then the devil left him, 
And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. An exceedingly high mountain. This is all the hallmarks of a, you know, of, of, of a vision, some sort of uh, dream vision type thing. I mean, literally, there is no mountain in the world you could go to to see all the king- kingdoms of the world in their glory. And not even one you could stand on that you would even be able to see the world kind of as they saw it, that, that which rested uh, under Roman hands even. I mean, if this were to have happened in real, you know, some real space, it would have had to, I suppose, take him up to the International Space Station. I trust you, you see the problem with that interpretation. But of course, the, the real point here is not the where, it's the what. It's the offer. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. <laughs> now, one of the first uh, questions my theology students used to ask me was um, whether or not this was even a legitimate offer. Is this even within Satan's capacity to, to give? And it was always interesting to sort of take the straw poll and see who in the classroom felt one way and who in the classroom felt the other before I, you know, being in the, the role of the teacher, told them they were all wrong because um, that's, that's the job. But just for fun, oh, now I've prejudiced you. You won't vote at all. I want to take a straw poll, see where you're at in here. How many of you, you can raise your hand once or twice or three times. You're allowed to vote multiple times in this election. How many of you, just by raise of hand, think that uh, what Satan is doing here in this offer is complete baloney? He doesn't have the rights or the authority. He's offering something that's beyond his ken. Uh, it's, it's, it's fake. It's trumped up. It's a trick. It's something like that. He can't really do it. How many of you would kind of land on that side? Be brave. Fight for your team. Okay, good. Good jump bunch of you. How many of you would be over on the other side saying, no, I, I think there, he really does. He's, he's making a legitimate offer that's his to make. He can really truly do this. Anyone? Couple, few, okay. Um, I guess, here we go for the bulk of you. How many of you in the middle don't, don't know, don't care? Just get on with the sermon. <laughs> All right, fair enough. I, I can handle that. <clears throat> well, like I said, in a few moments, I'm, I'm going to suggest to you, as with most things people want to take polls over, um, there's a sense that it's true and there's a sense that it's false. And it just requires a little nuance. We're not so good at nuance these days, it seems, but nevertheless, that's where it is. But not yet. We don't have all the facts that we need yet. We've got to finish the narrative. Christ will have none of it either way, whether it's legit or not legit. Nope. Why? (laughs) Because he knows the scriptures. You and you only shall we serve, he says to his father. At every point... In every one of the temptations, Jesus has answered them with what? Scripture. Oh, that's quite an admission, right? Even the Son of God, when facing temptation, does not do it in His own strength and authority. Let that be a lesson to you. Even He rests on Scripture, on the voice of His Father. Let's be honest, he could have done it. He could have answered the temptations. He could have, he could have answered the tempter with direct speech. Depart, be gone. I am the son of God. In my own authority, I command it. You couldn't blame him for that. No, he answers temptation with the same resources available to us. Thereby proving forever they are adequate. They are sufficient. 
We know in coming ministry that Jesus could have simply commanded it because how often are the, are the, the, the demons, the devils in his ministry forced to flee from him at a word? We know this was with, is within his authority and within his power. So again, with this strangeness, why flirt so, Jesus? Why trade barbs, quoting scripture, indulging the tempter's words, again with the strangeness? Well, of course, we did hear him. He did say, depart, it's time to go. And the devil, of course, had to leave. And now Matthew closes that account out with the angels coming to minister him. Okay, sure, now the angels show up. You remember that was from the, from the parable or from the uh, temptation last week, right? At the pinnacle of the temple, throw yourself off and who will come? The angels, right? Well, here they are now. Now that he has resisted the temptation, his father indeed does send angels to his aid. It's a kind of vindication. But you feel the difference, right? His father sends the angels as opposed to him demanding them by casting himself off. I mean, the, the only thing I can conclude from this is that Christ was perfectly willing content to starve to death a forgotten pauper in the wilderness rather than act outside his father's timeline. Now, that's an important piece I'm going to ask you to hang on to. We're going to come back to it in a few minutes. But I want to ask the larger question on the way toward it. What are we to make of this story? Why does it unfold the way it does? Why does Satan make such an offer? Why does Jesus respond as he does? Why is he there at all? Well, to understand all of these things, you have to realize that the events of, in the Gospels are not merely collections of random stories from the life of Jesus. You know, some ancient biographies are that way. They're just collections of random material. The Gospels are not that way. They begin with his birth, they go on to his death, and kind of everything in between. They, are, they follow a narrative arc. So if you want to understand what's happening here, you've got to understand that it's flowing out of events that have already happened, and it's predicting events that, events that are about to happen. So if we want to understand this, we're going to have to back up a little bit. Do you remember, perhaps it's been mentioned in the previous uh, sermons in the series, do you remember where Jesus is right before the wilderness. What event happens right before the wilderness temptations? Anyone? Bueller? The baptism. That's right. He is baptized in the Jordan River by John, by John the Baptist. Do you remember the great scandal of that baptism to John? John the Baptist has come uh, inviting people to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Confess their sins. Come to the waters. Be baptized. But he has been talking about one who is coming, whose, whose trainers are not worthy to untie. One before whom I will decrease so that he may increase. And then lo and behold, like the next day, here shows Jesus up on the top of the hill. And what does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, apparently, we, we all know what's supposed to happen at this point. John does. I guess John begins to, you know, come up, march up out of the water. Why? Because, you know,
tag, Jesus, you're it. And Jesus goes in and picks up where John left off. That's what's supposed to happen, right? Instead, what happens is Jesus, I guess, grabs John by the arm, takes him back into the water, and does what? Assumes the position in front of John as the one who is to receive the baptism. Who's supposed to stand there? Whose position is that? That's the position the sinner assumes. Jesus' very first public act of ministry, the very first thing he does to reveal himself to the world is do what? Assume the place of the sinner. That ain't just something he did on the cross, my friends. It was the defining mark of his entire ministry. He took our place. And you know the story, if you know that much, you know this, that the heavens open and the Spirit descends from heaven. The Father's words, my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus is now authorized, empowered for ministry like the prophets of old to go into the world and do His Father's will. Do you see what Jesus has done here? Though knowing no sin Himself, there was never anyone in the history of the world who needed a baptism less than Jesus... He has assumed the place of the sinner. John has just proclaimed him as the one who would take away the sin of the world. So from now on, his very first choice in ministry is to take the sinner's place, identify with us, his brothers and sisters in the flesh. He has proclaimed to the whole world his intention to walk this road on our behalf. Not as some divine, mystic, Gnostic phantom floating through the world untroubled by its cares. But as a faithful human ought to walk this road. He proclaims himself to be one of us, a child of Adam, a child of Abraham. The one who will renew humanity by redeeming it from the inside. He has declared that he will be faithful where Adam was not, where Israel was not. How often did he talk about this? He will know and do only the will of his Father. I have come not to do my own will, he says, but the will of him who sent me. I speak not my own words, but the words I am given from my Father. So vigorously do I align myself with my Father's agenda that if you have seen me and my work, who have you met? My Father and His work. There's nothing less than this that is happening there in the Jordan River. And His Father speaks from heaven, I approve. This is all important to understand. The great and world-shaping events happening here in the wilderness begin in the water. That's why it feels strange to us because well, there's a lot, there are many bigger things going on here than just the temptation of a hungry man to eat. That happened on Thursday and I failed. It's much bigger than that. All of history is hanging in the balance here. It's being summed up in this moment. Creation itself holding its breath, waiting to see what will be the answer of the Christ. 
you want to understand why it's so important, we've got to back up again. We've got to go back even further, all the way to the beginning. Yeah, it's that big of a story, my friends. You'll recall that when God first established humanity in the world, in our first parents, God put Adam and Eve upon a small little throne in creation, an underthrone, if you will, to do justice in the world on God's behalf. This little earthly throne of theirs was a mirror image of the great one that God sits on in heaven. God who rules over all has now in great mercy and grace delegated into the hands of these frail humans the destiny of the world. It was Adam and Eve's job to do what? God's will in God's name in the interests of God's kingdom. Do you feel the connections? But if you know that much of the story, you know the next chapter. How, how did they fare? No, they, they abandoned that throne in their rebellion. And the scriptures hint that in some great mystery none of us fully understand, a usurper was introduced into the mix. A usurper who had no right or rather only the right that came through Adam and Eve's abdication, sat down upon that throne and thus is known as the prince of the power of the air. A tempter, a traitor. One in whose hands the world now languishes, as St. Paul writes, longing for its liberation in the wake of the revelation of the sons of God. But you know God. God is unwilling to abandon the world, and so there is a promise made that one from Eve's womb, a man, like unto Adam himself, who will one day sit down upon that throne again, the throne of creation, and do justice among the nations. Now, not God's throne in heaven. That one was never under contention. That's not the issue. The issue is Adam's throne. The human throne, the throne of humanity in the world. Well, who is it that we've just met? Who is this one who has just come? Who is it that stands before John in the Jordan River but the new Adam? Who is it that now fasts in the wilderness but the new Israel? It's no wonder the devil tempts him with exactly this temptation. The nations of the world, don't you see? It is the usurper himself who now stands before him. He stands there in all of that pride and that usurpation is the source of the offer. St. John offers him, not God's throne, that's beyond his pay grade. He tried that one and it didn't go so well for him. What he's offering is the underthrone of creation, the one that Adam abandoned. The one that is already Jesus's by rights. Jesus, son of Adam, son of Abraham, would be well within his rights to take that throne, would he not? Would you blame him? No, we are, well, there's, a, there's a trick, a key for you. We are never more tempted than when we are offered something that we already perceive to be our rights. This is the very throne that God desires and intends to give Jesus one day. Did you hear that? One day. And there is the great threat of this temptation. 
the alternate way. There's always an alternate way. Jesus can have it all now. No suffering, no tireless ministry, no betrayal by friends, no cross, no death, no silent grave. If he will but merely tip his hat to the usurper, simply acknowledge the devil's rightful place between him and his father. Jesus could accomplish God's whole mission right now by simply accepting this new arrangement. And in that brief adoration, the usurper would be quietly and irrevocably legitimated as an authority in this world. Jesus would have betrayed us all, my friends. He would have abandoned the way of the sinner. He would have accomplished his father's ends by a means of his own making. With all due respect to Sinatra, he would have done it his way. He would have the nations of the world. And we, we would die unreconciled to God. But he didn't. He remained faithful to his baptism. He maintained his fast. He remained faithful to the humble path he was given. He took the harder road. And he said it with finality. I will do nothing outside my father's timetable and agenda. This was the reason Jesus did everything, wasn't it? Was this not the deepest passion and motive of his heart, the Father's will? Did he not just say it? Him and him only shall you serve. Ouch. This is that moment in the story where I've got to kind of step back because I'm kind of broken on the rocks of his example. Why, why do I do things? What is the deep motive behind our choices? What values really, really drive us down in the dark places of our soul we're not used to examining? What really does it for you? Is it fear? Fear of not having enough? Fear of failure? Fear of suffering? Fear of loneliness? Fear of loss or confrontation. Or maybe, maybe the deep drive for you is shame. Regret over a missed opportunity or a mistake that you've made. Something you cannot change, but nor can you escape. Or maybe, maybe it's want, a desire for more of something. A need to be perceived in a certain way. A desire to be successful or, or beautiful or loved. Desire for affirmation. What is it? Is it anger? Is it revenge? Envy? Can't we all just have a little peace? You want an assignment for your fast this week? I'll give you one. Carve out 30 minutes. 
Give yourself a, you know, a trip to Starbucks. Uh, get up 30 minutes before the kids. I mean, really penalize yourself. Give yourself a little space and quiet to reflect and ask yourself the question, what drives you? But then ask yourself this. Once you think you have an answer, ask yourself this even more troubling question. What if the tempter were to show up in your living room and offer it to you? And all you'd have to do to receive the thing you want or need most, the thing that drives you, all you have to do is cut a little corner. Tip your hat to evil somewhere. Throw off some tired relationship or obligation. Just look the other way. What would you do if it were really that easy? Dear God, I, I think I know what, what I would probably do. God help us. But don't you see? God has helped us. We have been given an example to follow. For God the Father did, in fact, desire to give all things to this Jesus. He does desire to give Him the very kingdoms of the world, the very angels of heaven. They were all His by rights. The Father well intended to bestow all of this glory on Him. But not this way. Not the easy way. Rather, by means of a longer road, a longer fast. St. Paul famously speaks of it as a great emptying, a pouring out of all the glories of heaven left behind, of hard roads and dusty paths. The foxes, of the, the foxes have their dens, the birds their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. But it was by means of that terrible, lonely road that the Father's larger will would in fact be done. That a man, our own brother, would again sit down upon Adam's throne and the whole of creation would be renewed. That's what the Father really wanted. But it wasn't to be had by means of the easy way of the tempter. It could only come by means of a road that led to a cross. Now, if you self-identify this morning as a Christian, you should be warned that part of what that means is that your road also will be Christ-shaped. And all too often for us, just as it was for him, the only path to glory will involve a cross. The only road to life often leads through a grave. So I ask you again to reflect this week in the midst of your fast, what drives you? I don't know what that reflection will say to you. I can't know. Christ did not come to make us all identical cogs for me to be able to read your mind. Christ came to make you yourself. So I can't predict what that reflection will tell you, but it may be something like that it's time for you to go get counseling. 
It may be time for you to confront an old rival with an apology. Or maybe a spouse or a child. You may have to forgive someone that doesn't deserve it. You may have to break a habit or start a new one. I don't know. But I can promise you this. The Christ-shaped road is going to be harder than the other one. I'm far enough down it now where I can say this without some, without much doubt, however, I have found that it is better. It is a better road. You learn things you don't learn going the easy way. It's a much harder road and a much greater glory. You should be warned that the tempter can and will offer you an easy way to deal with your shame or your fear by means of anger or shifted blame or self-loathing. There's an easy way to deal with desires for success or beauty or love. It's through manipulation, abuse, even self-harm. Yeah, those are all easy roads. Thousands take them every day. And they have their tortured reward. But your father is beckoning you toward a much longer, harder, Christ-shaped path. Why, you ask? Why doesn't God just leave me alone and let me pick whatever road I want? It's very simple. Your father loves you. And love does not leave alone. Love meddles, causes problems. Your father really does want to free you from shame, from fear, from desire. But it isn't through the quick, self-cheating ways of the tempter. Rather, it's through a road that consists of many turns, ups and downs, failures and successes, stumblings and recoveries, with beautiful vistas and, yes, dark forests, in cycles of labor and rest that will take a whole life life that will, at times, feel less like a holiday, more like a crucifixion. But I invite you this morning to not fear the desert. Don't fear the tempter. Never fear the longer road. Never fear the cross. Because the very thing that now threatens to destroy you if you will but follow the Christ-shaped path. It's the very thing that is going to fit you for your next glory. May I pray with you? Father, in the coming season, teach us the value slowly of lingering over what provokes and disturbs us teach us to listen not to the tempter's voice the one who constantly invites us to take the quick and easy turn but teach us to listen to your voice your agenda to love your way and your kingdom 
teach us to wait. May this Advent season be truly one in which we sense like never before.